0: Well, normally on Sanctity of Life Sunday, I will take the opportunity to take the whole service to preach on that topic, and often I try to convince you that the biblical position uh, is one of life, related to life, because as she mentioned, we believe biblically that we are made in the image of God. Uh, You've never met a human being that wasn't made in the image of God, meaning there's inherent worth and dignity in every single human life. We believe that. Beyond that, as Christians, we believe that every human life has value because Jesus died on the cross for them. Yeah. Second Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, we used to know people after the flesh, but we don't know people like that anymore because one died for all, therefore all died. Yeah. So every person you meet has value, has dignity, has unsurpassable worth. Why? They're made in the image of uh, the holy God. And number two, Jesus died for them. One of my favorite quotes from John Wesley, you guys have heard this a lot of times in the past, you know, Wesley said that when he saw a beggar coming to him, he didn't see somebody caked in dirt and covered in rags. He saw someone, here's the quote, purpled over in the blood of Christ. Mm. What if we saw every single person we, every single person we ever met, we saw them as made in the image of God and purpled over in the blood of Christ. Wow. So every human life is holy, and I would just note, just as a side note here, that all the people who support abortion have already been born. So we could go on and on about that, but this year, uh, I'm not going to do that because I feel led that the Lord is doing something in us related to prayer, and I want to keep going on that. Our our scripture for the year, which has been our theme and is functioning as our outline for the year, is Acts 2.42 which is Luke describing this new band of Christ followers after the day of Pentecost, what characterized them. He said this, Luke 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. The early church, in the last couple weeks, we've just been focusing on prayer, the early church devoted themselves to prayer, largely, I think, because they were simply following what the Lord had modeled for them. Jesus was a man of prayer. He devoted himself to prayer. So it was just natural that they would follow him. They said, Jesus prayed, so let's be like him. And so they prayed like him. I want to talk to you this morning about praying like Jesus. Because I want to be like Jesus. Don't you want to be like Jesus? Rose wants to be like Jesus. So I want to talk to you about praying like Jesus. First John 2, 6 says, Whoever claims to live in him must walk As Jesus did so if you're gonna claim you're gonna I'm a disciple of Jesus well then you should walk like Jesus did first Peter 2 21 to this you were called because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps right so as disciples of Jesus and a disciple just means a learner okay that's what a disciple is it's a learner and the word disciple goes along with the word that we don't like discipline so to be a disciple of Jesus is to be a learner of Jesus, to submit to the discipline of the master. And so it's to, when you do that, you begin to walk in the way he walked, walk in his steps. And part of that means you pray like Jesus. And so you may be thinking, okay, well, what, what does that look like? What does that mean to pray like Jesus? Well, if you have your Bible, thank you for asking that question, by the way. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter. 6 I'm going to turn and then when you find it, why don't you stand up on your feet as we read the text this morning. I'm going to read this, uh, and as a reminder, we stand for the reading of Scripture, not because we think we stand over Scripture, but we stand under Scripture. We respect the authority of Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 5, and when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand praying in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Lord, take your word right now. And Lord, we know that this is inspired. You have breathed this out. Breathe on us now. Help us to be illuminated. Illuminate our minds, our hearts to hear, to see. Give us insight into what you're saying. And help us, oh God, by your Holy Spirit to pray like Jesus. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. You can be seated. So let's just unpack this text and talk about what it means to pray like Jesus. To pray like Jesus means a few things. It affects both the posture, the purpose, and the power of prayer. Let's just unpack those. To pray like Jesus means the posture of prayer is complete dependence on God. It's very important for us to get that. Everything in this text that Jesus is teaching about prayer, everything he did in demonstrating prayer to his disciples was based on and arises out of dependence on God. In fact, one of absolutely the most striking attributes of Jesus' earthly ministry is that he was completely dependent on the Father. He did nothing on his own. John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus is speaking. He says, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing. Amen. And he's speaking about himself in the third person there. And just in case you got confused about what he was saying, in verse 30 he says, by myself I can do nothing. Now just let that seep in for a minute because on the first surface, if that wasn't Jesus talking and somebody else was talking about him, I would have said, that's blasphemy. What do you mean you can Jesus said, by myself I can do that. He only did what he saw the Father. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 49, for I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. Amen. Jesus was so dependent on the Father, it wasn't just that he only did what the Father told him to do and he only could do what the Father told him to do. He only said what the Father told him to say and how to say it. And then do you know what he did? He turned around and said, I can only do what I see my father doing. And then he said to us in John 15, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Amen. Just so we're clear, Amen. by myself I can do nothing, and by yourself you can do nothing. So do you get the point? Just as Jesus was dependent on the father, we are dependent on Jesus. And his spirit, and the way we express that dependency, the way we experience that dependency, the way we're empowered is in prayer. Now, Jesus demonstrated this in his own life, and I'll just take uh, Luke and Acts. You know, Luke is the only gospel with a sequel, right? Luke is volume one, Acts is volume two. And and in Luke and Acts, uh, Jesus expressed his dependence on the Father through prayer, and every critical point in the life of Jesus and the early church, they were praying. I'm going to show this to you. I'm going to go through these scriptures really quickly. Uh, you don't, don't try to look them all up because we're going to go quick. You might not even be able to write them down, but maybe you can take a picture of the screen, okay? Or shoot me an email and I'll send you my notes. Okay, so here's Gospel of Luke. Here's where prayer was involved in the life of Jesus. Luke 1.10, Zechariah, remember the story? He encounters an angel. When? According to Luke, when people were outside praying. Luke 2, verse 37, Anna is, is praying, it says, day and night. In Luke 3 verse 21, Jesus is baptized, and only in Luke, in the other gospels it just says, you know, the spirit descends on him like a dove, but in Luke it says, the Holy Spirit descended when he was praying. Luke chapter 5 verse 16, it says Jesus habit was to withdraw from the crowd and pray. Luke chapter 6 verse 12, Jesus prayed through the night before he chose his 12 disciples. Luke 9 verse 18, Jesus was praying when Peter made his confession. When he said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. In and, and Luke chapter 9, verse 28, the transfiguration happened when they were on the mountain to do what? To pray. In Luke uh, chapter 10, verse 21, the 72 return. You remember this? They're going, man, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus said, yo, listen, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Don't rejoice in that. Rejoice your names are written in the book of life. And then he says, he just breaks out spontaneously into prayer. I thank you, Father. You know, he just... Praying all the time. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 11, Jesus gives some didactic teaching on prayer and gives some parables of prayer. Luke 22, verse 32, Jesus prays for Simon. Do you remember that story? He says, hey, Simon Peter, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I'm praying for you. Man. I mean, if it had been me, I would have been like, don't pr- just tell him no. <laughs> Go away, devil, just tell him that. Just-. Jesus said, I'm praying for you. Listen, if you want somebody praying for you, He said, I'm praying for And after you have returned, help your brothers. Ooh, that's powerful. You know, he, basically what he's saying is, Simon Peter, you're not just going through what you're going through for yourself. You're going through it for your brothers too. And he prayed for him. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Jesus is in Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives and he's crying out in prayer. In fact, we learn in Hebrews 5, verse 7, that it was with loud groans. In Gethsemane, that he's crying out to God. And then in Luke chapter 23, verses 34 and 46, Jesus is praying from the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And then he says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now here's the question. Why did Luke emphasize prayer so much throughout the whole gospel? Jesus is always praying. Why would he do that? I think it's co, we would follow Jesus' example. Jesus was dependent on the Father. He was in no way self-reliant. He was in constant communication with the Father for guidance and strength. In fact, it was more than just guidance and strength. Jesus got his identity in relationship with the Father. And so secure was he in that identity that he was completely free. This is a paradox for us. Because we think if you're dependent on somebody, you're not really free. But Jesus was completely dependent on the Father, and that meant he was completely free. He didn't need to get people's approval because he already had the Father's approval. You know what that meant? He was free to love people and tell them the truth. Well, why could he do that? Because he didn't need anything from them because he already had it from the Father. Man, when Peter denied him and the others abandoned him, he kept moving forward with the Father. Jesus was unstoppable because he got everything he needed from the Father. He was so free, he loved his enemies. He forgave them while he was still on the cross. It wasn't like he was offended by them and six years later he came to a church and the preacher preached on forgiveness and they went, Okay, I'll forgive them in Jesus' name. In my name. You know, it wasn't, he didn't know from the cross they're nailing his hand to the tree and he's forgiven can you imagine how free is that (laughs) not even being crucified could force him to curse his enemies they couldn't make him hate them he didn't give them that power He loved them. He prayed for them. He wasn't controlled by them. He was free. Let me tell you something, you guys. When we get everything in our relationship from Jesus, when we get everything we need from him, we're dependent on him, we're really free. Man, if you get your acceptance from God, you don't have to be going around trying to get it from other people. If If you're in relationship with God, you're so dependent on your relationship with the Lord that your approval comes from him. Your identity even comes from him. You don't have to run around trying to get people to like you or love you or do stuff for you to make you be who you are. You are who you are because God said you are. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Man, I love it in 1 Corinthians 4. Remember this text in 1 Corinthians 4? Paul says, look, I don't really care what you think about me. But then again, I don't really care what I think about me. I only care what he thinks about me. And what he thinks about me is Jesus died on the cross for me, so I'm already accepted. Already approved, already loved, already adopted into his family, and now I'm free to love you. I am free to live as if nobody owes me anything, which means when you live that way like Jesus did, you're almost unoffendable. Almost unoffendable. Why? Because what does it mean to be offended? You get offended when you think somebody owes you something they aren't giving you. I mean it don't have to be just money. They they owe you respect. They owe you, you know, don't cut me off in traffic. Or they they owe you whatever. When you get offended, it's because you think somebody owes you something that they're not giving you. But when you get everything you need from God, you're not easily offended because you already got it. Already got everything I need. And let me tell you something: the fruit of that kind of life is peace. It's joy. <laughs> Well, how are you going to live like that? Well, how are you going to get to this place of dependence on God where you're getting your approval from him, you're getting your acceptance from him, you're getting your identity from him? Well, first of all, you got to be in the word, and we're going to get to that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're going to get to that. But where we are today is they devoted themselves to prayer. It's in prayer. In communication and in communion with the Father through the Holy Spirit because of what Jesus did on the cross that you're having this relationship and you are affirmed in this relationship and you are who he says you are. In the book of Acts, the disciples did the same thing, okay? So let's look at Acts just like we did Luke. Acts 1.14, it says they were constantly in prayer. Acts one twenty four, they prayed when they were choosing Matthias. Acts 2.42, they were devoted to prayer. Acts 4, they prayed after, they th- after the threats. You remember this? Don't talk about Jesus anymore. Okay. <laughs> they go, what, to a picket line? Oh, no, to a prayer meeting. And say, God, give us more of what got us in trouble in the first place. Make us bold and stretch forth your hand to do miraculous signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Man, come on. Acts 6, verse 4, they chose deacons, why? So they could devote themselves to prayer in the ministry of the word. Acts 7, verse 59, the last act of Stephen was to pray. Acts 9, 11, Saul is praying when he gets a vision of Ananias. Acts 9, verse 40, Tabitha is raised from the dead when Peter prays. Acts 10, verse 9, Peter gets a vision to go to Cornelius' house when? When he's praying, which really, for us, is kind of a big deal in church history because that's when we get in on the action. Because he starts going to Gentiles at that time. Hallelujah. When he do that? When he was praying. Acts chapter 12, verse 5. Peter is rescued from jail by an angel. When? When the church was praying. And just a side note on that one. It, the text actually says the church was praying, English, NIV, fervently. In Greek, it's the same word that describes Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Remember that prayer? Hebrews 5, 7, with loud groans in in the Gospels, he he was sweating, as it were, drops of blood. That's intense prayer, you guys. And it says the church was praying just like Jesus. And then, as as a, a very famous Puritan, Thomas Watson said, I love this. He says, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. It is good. For one reason, it's fun to say fetch fetch me. The angel did fetch Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. Acts 13, verse 3, Saul and Barnabas are commissioned on their first missionary journey when when they were praying. Here's my point. This wasn't recorded so we could say, hey, look what they did back then. No. No. To pray in Jesus' name. It, 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 listen, this was recorded so that it would instruct us, it would guide us, it would sh- prayer would shape us and characterize us in the lives that we live as we seek to represent Jesus to the world. So what he's saying to him, I'm saying all of our prayer life it should be our dependence on God, and we should just bathe everything in prayer. That's what Jesus did. I want to be like him. That's what the early church did. They were devoted to prayer. So to pray like Jesus, number one, it, it means the, the posture of prayer is dependence on God. Number two, the purpose of prayer is to know God, not get stuff from him. Now, and obviously, it's not wrong to ask things you know, from God in prayer. Jesus says in the model prayer, I just read it, he gave examples of what you should ask for. I mean, the Lord's Prayer teaches us to ask for things. I mean, later in, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 7, Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Okay? Mark eleven twenty four. 24, therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe you received it and it will be yours. John 14, 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. Those all, that's all Jesus talking there. So we are invited beyond that. We're actually instructed, commanded to ask for things. But if we think that prayer is simply all about asking God for stuff, we're totally missing the point and we're no longer praying like Jesus. I mean, in this text, I just look at it. In the text, in Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, when you come to, Jesus, when you come to God, you need to want to know God for himself, Like in verses 5 and 6 there, he says, you know, there, there are people who pray to be seen by other people. And there's one kind of prayer that you do so that other people see you. There's another kind of prayer that can only be done in secret. And you say, well, what is that all about? Well, I mean, Jesus can't be saying never pray publicly because he prayed publicly. And the disciples did too. I think what Jesus is going after here is our motives in prayer. See, most of the things in the Christian life can be seen. Right? You go to church people see you. You you serve in the nursery, people see you. You you teach kids ministry, people see You, you. You teach a Bible study, people see that. You teach a life group or you go to life group, people see that. You, somebody slaps you on one side, you turn the other cheek and you get slapped. People see that. And most of the Christian life is seen. Virtually everything we do is seen except nobody sees if you go in your closet and pray secretly. You say, what's the point? Well, see, The things you do as a Christian, you might be doing for God, or you might be doing it to be seen. Could be the same thing, but you might might be doing it because you love Jesus, and you might be doing it because you want a certain reputation. See, I could be up here preaching this morning, and I could be doing it because, man, I love Jesus. I love Jesus, and I want to please his heart, and I want to be faithful to what he said to do, and and, and I love him, and I love his flock. I love the flock of God. I love you guys. I could 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 be up here preaching because I want the flock of God to be fed God's word. I could be doing Or I could be up here preaching so that I get power, or that you think I'm holy, or you think I'm smart, or you think I'm righteous. Same activity could come from two different places. Jesus here in, in, in Matthew 6, he's actually doing an analysis of religion that Frederick Nietzsche did. Now, this is probably the only time you will ever hear me quote Frederick Nietzsche from the pulpit positively, okay? But he was right about one thing, maybe a couple, but at least one thing. And what he was right about was Nietzsche said, religious people often use religious activity to get a self-image. They get a reputation, so that they have a platform to get power. They say to themselves that religious people will often do religious activity so they can say, I am a moral person. I am a religious person. I am a holy person. I am a pastor. You are mere peons. I am the pastor. (laughs) And people do things like that to get a moral superiority. You know what it is? It's not about Jesus. It's not about loving God. It's about a will to power. It's an effort to wield power, and Jesus knew that. Okay, Frederick Nietzsche didn't know anything that Jesus didn't already know. And Jesus knew you might be doing all these Christian practices not to please God and know God, but as a way to get power, to get a self image, to make yourself feel like a good person so you're self righteous. And you say, Well, how, how do we know? Well, Jesus says there's one acid test. There's one acid test. To spend time in prayer privately, secretly, when nobody knows you did it, you're not getting it. People aren't seeing you pray. They aren't seeing you be religious. They aren't seeing you be spiritual. You're doing it for no other reason than you love Jesus. And you want to talk to him. And Jesus says, that's how you know if you're a hypocrite. See, there are those who would use prayer as a way of getting power, and there are those who just want to be with God. And and the people who want to be with God, they have a powerful secret prayer life. Philip Yancey wrote a book called Prayer Doesn't Make Any Difference. And here's what he writes towards the beginning of the book. The main purpose of prayer is not to make life easier, nor to gain magical powers, but to know God. I need God more than anything I might get from God. Did, did you hear that last sentence? I need God. Do you believe this? Amen. I need At least, you know, Sammy does. Uh, I need God more than anything I might get from God. See, listen, when when you begin to see that Jesus is your supreme treasure, what you realize is He is what you need. You need God more than anything else he could ever give you because why? He is the greatest possible reward you could ever have. There is no treasure greater than him. This is why C.S. Lewis said in a classic, uh, uh, you know, uh, essay, collection of essays called The Weight of Glory, which I'm sure you've all read by now because you've been at church for a while. He said this, he who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. Just say, you say, no, that, I mean, if you have God in a nice car, you have more. No, you don't. <laughs> he who has God in everything else has no more than he who has God only. Why? Because he is everything you need. Every single longing of the human heart finds its fulfillment in him. And you guys know this is true. Nothing in this world really satisfies. Nothing, I don't care. We just came through Christmas. Even if I had, listen, I made out at Christmas. Oh, I got some good gifts this year. Man, you know what? My, my, First of all, my wife gave me some awesome stuff. But beyond that, my sons and daughters, because I got daughters now. Huh? Come on. And I got a grand... Did I mention I have a grandson coming? Yeah, I got a grandson coming. And I'm just, just going to go ahead and tell you right now, I'm going to be over the top. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm repenting of my sin ahead of time. I, and that little boy is going to be awesome. I'm just telling you ahead of time. All right. What was I talking about? Oh, I know. Christmas. So on Christmas, see, my boys are old enough and my daughters are old enough that they got their own money now. Hey, thank you, Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah, come on. Shannon felt the Holy Ghost right there. He felt the Holy Ghost. And they all gave me gifts, creative gifts, awesome gifts. I made out at Christmas. More than I probably ever had, probably. But you know what? The day after Christmas, still the day after Christmas. Christmas never really satisfies. You know why? We were made for another world. And we only find our satisfaction in Jesus Christ. So let's review where we are so far. To pray like Jesus means, number one, it means the posture of prayer is complete dependence on God. Number two, it means the purpose of prayer is to know God because the greatest possible reward is Him. And finally, number three, the power of prayer is relationship with God. In other words, the power of prayer is not hidden in a formula or a technique. Because prayer is not about formula or technique, it's about relationship with God. I mean, this is what Jesus is getting at in chapter 6 of Matthew, verses 7 and 8, when he says, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. See, some people get overly concerned about saying it just right because they see prayer as a technique, they see prayer as a formula, and if we do it just right, God's got to do what we want, right? And Jesus says, that's a pagan view. Your prayers aren't about performance, it's about your relationship with the Father. Why else do you think, did you notice when I read that, how many times Jesus used the word Father in ten verses? Six times. Six times. I mean, listen, he must have a relationship with the Father. I mean, if I'm constantly talking about Marlene, you might think, wow, he really digs Marlene. Right? Because I'm always talking about her. Well, Jesus is always talking about the Father. I think, why would he do that? Because he's trying to shout it out so we don't miss it. Power of prayer comes in relationship with God, not the use of long words or eloquent words or pious sounding phrases. And in one of his letters, C.S. Lewis is debating with a friend over the use of words in prayer. And and finally, this is in his book, uh, Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer. Uh, and, And in one of the letters, he says, look, you're just missing the point. And then he says this, words are in any case secondary. They are only an anchor or, shall I say, they are the movements of a conductor's baton, not the music. See, the music of prayer... It's not your cleverly designed words. The music of prayer is your relationship with the Father. Oh, man, this is good. See, I wasn't saying that. I was saying that about what, anyway, you, you understand what I said. Okay. Listen, this is encouraging for a lot of reasons. But let me give you just one. A lot of people that I meet feel very unworthy to come to God in prayer. And the reason they feel unworthy is because of their past, because they failed, they sinned, they fell short, they, they, and they begin to carry shame, and they carry guilt, and, and they know they sinned, and they, and they think, I don't deserve it. And just so I'm very clear, you don't, and neither do I, all right? But here's the good news, you're standing before God is not on the basis of your performance. It's on grace. See, you come to God not on the basis of your past, but on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross. And because of what Jesus did on the cross, you can say, Abba, Father. Yeah. Listen, you don't just get saved by grace. You pray by it as well. Now, I can, because of Jesus, I can call God Abba because of the gospel, because of what Jesus did on the cross. I can say, you know what? I've been justified. I've been declared righteous. God says, I am holy and blameless in his sight. I'm accepted by him. I'm adopted by him. And why? Does that, what does that mean? That means that now I can approach the throne with boldness, the text says. Why? Because he's my father. See, the proper basis for prayer is not your righteousness. It's Jesus' righteousness. You don't come to Jesus saying, well, I did this and I did this. Here's all the good stuff I did. No, no, no. You just come to God on the basis of here's what Jesus did. That's the proper basis. And that is why, did you notice this when I read this earlier? This is why Jesus talked about forgiveness in a text on prayer. Did you know that? Did you read, did you hear that when I said that? I mean, when I read that earlier, he says, he gets to the end of the model prayer and he says, because you need to forgive everybody because if you don't forgive... God's not going to forgive you. And you look at that and you go, what in the world? It's kind of scary. Verse 15 is a little bit scary. Here's what he's saying. You cannot possibly look at a person who has wronged you and refuse to forgive that person unless deep in your heart you feel superior to them. I would never do anything like that. Listen, it's impossible to keep a grudge without self-righteousness. Without superiority, which is the very thing Jesus said you gotta give away. You gotta get rid of. It. See, can I, can I just give you some straight talk right now? Just some straight talk right here. You were a sinner. You were a you were a, let's get the word, you were dead in your transgressions and sin on your way to hell. You were gonna crack hell wide open when you got saved and you didn't save yourself. But then. You met Jesus, and because of what Jesus did on the cross, you were taken out of the kingdom of darkness, transferred into the kingdom of light, and now you are a saint. You are blameless. You are holy in His sight. You're a new creation. All old things have passed away. The new has become or come, and here you are, and that's who you are, and that's who Scripture says you are. <laughs> but you can't believe that and, and hold a grudge against somebody at the same time, because if you know you're forgiven, you will forgive. And I'm going to say it, nobody get offended. Don't you love when people say that? I'm to say something, but don't be offended. Oh, okay. I'm offended already. Um, if you don't forgive, it means you don't think you need forgiveness. And that, my friends, is a terrifying place to be because Jesus came not for the healthy but for the sick. Not for the righteous, but for people who know that they have sinned and they need a Savior. But here's the beauty of that. When you let the gospel in, man, when you realize that you've been saved by grace and that Jesus did that for you and that you pray by grace as well. When you realize that, you know what, you have an authority in prayer because prayer is just a child going before his or her father. And sometimes it is to ask for things, and sometimes it's just to learn about him, to know him, to be with him. That is power. And the fact that the power in prayer comes from relationship with God suggests something. It suggests that prayer is a lifestyle, not an event once a day at your evening meal. It's a lifestyle. Very early on, um, uh, I read a book by Brother Lawrence called The Practice of the Presence of God. I know many of you have read that. Uh, It was written by a 17th century monk who spent almost all of his day in the kitchen at washing dishes. Okay, that was kind of his thing. And he believed that you could actually live in the presence of God. You could live with an awareness of God's presence throughout the day. And in fact, he said, when I'm washing the dishes, it's no different than when I'm in my prayer time in the prayer chamber because God's there the whole time. And he was constantly bringing his mind back to the fact or recognition God is here. And, and, and living out of it. And he said it's not about doing different stuff than you normally do. It's about doing what you normally do for a different reason. You do it now for the love of God. Right. And he said he got to the point where if he, and this is the word, okay, I'm not here on this yet. But he said if he bent over to pick up a leaf, he did it for the love of God. I'm not there yet. But I want to be. Yes. So that every moment of my day... Is I'm living in the presence of God. See, here's the deal. See, we have, and it was a good thing, but many, many, when I was a kid, uh, we started, I don't know when we, people started talking about this. But when I was a kid, it, you know, at church and other places, we talked about having a quiet time. Now, just so we're clear, I believe you should, you should have a quiet time. That's a good discipline. In the morning, get in the Word, pray, spend some time with the Lord. But the inadvertent consequence of that was I began to see God's time was the quiet time. The rest of the day was mine. Like I was going to tithe part of my day, which is, well, it wasn't really, I mean, a tithe means a tenth. So there's 24 hours in a day. That would be 2.4 hours. I wouldn't pray in no 2.4 hours. It wasn't even really 2.4 minutes, to be honest with you. But the feeling was I have my time with the Lord, then I'm going to go on with the rest of my day. And, and listen, that's not the way to look at this. No, the whole day belongs to him. It, by the way, he made it. It's his universe that you're living in, because he lets you. Francis Chan once said, "You know, God created the universe, so He gets to make the rules." Now, you may think you got better rules than Him. The problem is, you don't have a universe. (laughs) That is a problem. Listen, there's an incredible power in prayer when you realize it's about the relationship you have with the Father, and it goes all day long, and it doesn't have to be just in a quiet time. It can go all through the day. No matter what you're doing, you can remember. Draw, and don't Listen, if you think, and this is another thing Brother Lawrence said. He said, if you realize, oh, no, I haven't thought about God in three hours, don't beat yourself up over it. Jesus already died on the cross for your sin. You don't have to try to extract extra payment. His payment was enough. The cross was more than enough to pay for every sin you've ever committed or will commit. So don't be just say, Lord, I just draw my attention back to you. I thank you that you're here with me. Forgot that you were here, but sorry about that, but I'm remembering it now. And when you live like that, there is a power. There is a power. I'll give you a couple stories and then I'll be done unless I think of something else. (laughs) Chip Ingram wrote a book called The Invisible War. Uh, And and in the book he tells us, it's a book about spiritual warfare and at the end there's a a chapter on prayer and there's a story in the book in in this chapter on prayer. Uh, about a, a, a gentleman who was a missionary in Africa, and he was out in the jungle, and he had to go back to the main city that had medical supplies. He was a medical missionary, and he had to get medical supplies, but it was a two-day trip. So y- y- the first day, he travels through the jungle, but he has to spend the night in the jungle. Then the second day, he gets to the city. When he gets to the city, he meets uh, these two guys who had been in a fight, and one guy was really hurt and injured, and so he cared for him, gave medical care to this guy, he got the supplies he needed, and then he went back to where he was going. It was a two-day trip. Trip back so he spends the night overnight in the jungle then he gets back to where he was a couple months later he's got to go get medical supplies he does the same thing spend the night in the jungle gets back to the city when he does he meets the guy who he had given medical care to some months earlier and the guy tells him listen my friends and I we knew you had money and you had medicine so we followed you last time you were here out into the jungle and we were going to kill you and take all your stuff but there were six of us, and when we followed you out there, we saw you with all of those armed escorts. And, and the missionary says, I, there wasn't any armed escort. I, I was by myself. They go, oh, come on. We, there were six of us here, and we all saw them, and we all counted them. There were 26. You had 26 armed guards that night. We all, six of us, counted them. He thought this is odd. But he probably didn't want to say any more, just in case they were going to follow him that night. Yeah, that's right. I yeah, had 26. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Listen, that's not the end of the story. A few months later, he goes back to his home church in Michigan. He's given a testimony, as sometimes missionaries do, about their time. He's given, and he tells the story. While he's telling the story, a gentleman in the church jumps up, interrupts his testimony, and says, We were there with you in spirit. And he says, What are you talking about? He said, the day that happened, because he had the date, he said, the day that happened, it was night in Africa when it was daytime here, and I came to church to drop off something. They had like a refugee ministry, and he was dropping off some stuff. And he said, I had an impression that we needed to pray for you. So I got on the phone, and I called a bunch of the men in the church. We met up here at church and prayed. And then he said, will you guys stand up who joined us in prayer that day? They stood up. Wait for it. Wait for it. All 26 of them stood up. Here's the point. Here's the point. When you realize prayer is just about relationship with your father, there is a power that happens. Just yesterday I I was talking to a dear sister in our church and and who's praying for a a child. And, And this lady, she said to me, she said, hey, Pastor Tim, did I hear right that the famous church father Augustine that he was a prodigal? And I said, Yeah, that's right. And we kind of recounted this story to me uh, that he was a prodigal. He was away from the Lord, and, and he went off in riotous living. In fact, later when he wrote his confessions, which is you know his testimony, he says um, he said, "I was in the mood to be seduced." Um, he, in other words, he he actually prayed a prayer: "Lord, grant me chastity, only not yet." Uh, The guy was in all kinds of type of living, all right? He went off into pagan philosophy. He became a Manichaean. He was away from the Lord. Uh, He had a son out of wedlock named Adeodatus, but he had a mother who was praying. And she knew something about prayer being a relationship with the Father. And ironically, her name was Monica. Her name was Monica, and Monica used to pray for uh, Augustine, and she used to, through tears, weeping, pray. And one day she's at the church, and the bishop, you know, wants to lock up. You know how sometimes y'all hang around and talk a long time, but Phil Yeoman, he want to get out of here, and, and so he turned the light off on people. You know how that happens? This is basically what the bishop was doing, you know, I, but it wasn't light, like, it was like candles. And, and so he said, I need to, and he says, Woman, you need to go home. And she's weeping, she's crying out to God for her son. She said, I'm not leaving unless you do something. She wants the bishop to, you know, get a hold of his son, you know, and bring him back to God, like, through force. And she won't leave. And she's weeping. And finally, the bishop says, go home, lady. It is impossible that the son of these tears should perish. And he came back to Jesus. And became one of the greatest minds in the history of the church. And, in fact, so, so deeply changed was he that one day there's a story told. One day he's walking down the road, and, and one of the women that he had been with called out to him, Augustine! He kept on walking. She shouted out again, Augustine! He kept on stepping. Finally, she said, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine stopped, and he turned around, and he said, yes, my dear, but it is not I. In other words, he had been made new. He wasn't the Listen, there's some parents in here, you're praying for your kids, and they're away from the Lord just like Augustine was. I'm going to tell you something. The same God that Monica prayed to is the same God that we're praying to for your kids. And it is impossible that the child of these tears should perish. Listen, here's the point. When you understand prayer as a relationship, there is power. So to pray like Jesus, let's just summarize. To pray like Jesus means, number one, the posture of prayer is complete dependence on God. The purpose of prayer is to know God. The power of prayer is relationship with God.